So today and next week, we're going to do an overview of Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, For the sake of time and focus, I'm going to read uh, read the passage as we go along. Uh, The bulletin insert that hopefully all of you have has the outline on it, and and each point is an outline heading, and, and we're going straight through the passage. Today we're going to look at the first two points that I have for you of the four that I, I have from, from uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. And then next week, Lord willing, we will look at the, the final uh, two, two points that I have, the rest of the chapter of, of chapter 12. The Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. A grueling, lifetime, long-distance run. I don't run much, but when I do, I certainly do not run 26.2 miles, the distance of a marathon. I cap the distance that I run to, to 3.2 miles because there's a 5K that happens every year, and that's as far as I will run, 3.2 miles. And to be honest, I walk a lot of that. So running is not my thing, and it's hard, you know. I, I don't like to do it, even though I ran track in college. I was a jumper. I wasn't a runner. Uh, We had to run a little bit, but it was always short distances. So I never liked running long distances because it's hard. It's difficult. And and so it's appropriate imagery being used here by the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12. Endurance running. The Christian life is fraught with difficulties, and endurance is necessary, just as it is in long-distance running. The Christian marathon of life uh, is difficult because, it's ha- because it has its own set of obstacles. And I can think of at least three. Can you imagine running a marathon? You know, it's hard enough to run a marathon, I would suppose, not that I've ever run one. But could you imagine running a marathon where there are enemies along the way who are trying to trip you up and, and lead you off the course? Well, in the Christian life, the Christian has such an enemy who is seeking to lead us astray, get us tripped up, and wants us to eventually quit the race altogether. The enemy is that first obstacle. And anyone who is a Christian has certainly been tripped up along the way. It happens to all of us. The second obstacle to the Christian life, which makes it so difficult, is a little easier for us to imagine. Uh, That is, running a marathon where where the environment is against you. Now, could you imagine running uh, a marathon in the heat that we have had for the last couple of weeks? I mean, it's just so oppressive, and the humidity is practically 100%, and uh, just a a stifling, uh, oppressive heat, and then you're exerting yourself to such a degree in the midst of that. I think that would be a recipe for some stroke or heart attack or something along those lines. It would be brutal. Well, the Christian marathon of life is run in a world that is hostile to Christianity. And our world, our particular culture, is getting more hostile to Christianity by the day, at least it seems. And if that wasn't enough, there is the third obstacle that is often more problematic than the other two, and that is ourselves. When I do, on occasion, go out to run, as I 
step on the scales and look and think, okay, I've got to do something about uh, the weight gain here. Uh, when I do go out to run, I have to coax and goad myself to keep going, not to quit running, because usually I cave in to those desires to, to stop and walk and then immediately go into the air conditioning. Well, our fleshly desires, ourselves, hamper us from running the, the, the race of the Christian life faithfully. We want to take a break. We want to relax. We want to smell the flowers by the side of the road. So there's obstacles. Christian life is difficult. It's like running a marathon with a few extra added uh, difficulties mixed in. And you see what I've done here. The Christian life is difficult because of the three enemies that we have. The, the, the devil, the world, and our flesh. The traditional enemies of the Christian. So the Christian life is difficult. And as the writer of Hebrews in, verse, in chapter 10, verse 36 says, you have need of endurance. You know, if we could, it would be great if we could go out and run and, and not have need of endurance, you know, that we could just naturally go out and run as far as we wanted, as long as we wanted. But, of course, that's not the way it works. We have need of endurance if we're going to finish the race. If you don't have endurance, you're not going to be able to finish the race. So we need endurance because it's difficult. And, in, you know, maybe you, you today are in that place where you're ready to give up on the Christian life. Or maybe you're already way off course and you maybe even find yourself face down in the ditch, metaphorically speaking. The question is, how do we get up and keep going and run with endurance to the end? Now, I firmly believe that chapter 12 is of vital importance to us today where our culture is becoming increasingly hostile to Christianity and the church. It won't be long if we continue on our current path in this country until Christians are completely marginalized in our society. And there may even come a time in the not-too-distant future where Jesus' words to the disciples in John chapter 16, verse 2, apply to us. Jesus said, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And that's getting true in our culture today is people who oppose, for example, traditional sexual ethics. They think that because we hold to these traditional ethics that we are bigots. And they really think that we are on the wrong side of God if they actually believe in God. And our culture will soon be punishing us for holding these views, biblical views. They'll start with the church and they will remove our tax-exempt status, for example. That day will soon come. I firmly believe it if we continue on our present course. So in the times that we live, Hebrews 12 is absolutely vital to us because it speaks to us of, of enduring in the Christian life. How do we endure when things get difficult? Because our lives are becoming more and more, as Christians, our lives are becoming more and more like the people to whom the writer of Hebrews was writing. They were persecuted for their faith. It was very difficult for them to live as Christians. They had trouble finding jobs and they didn't fit into the culture in which they lived. They were on the margins of society, and it was difficult, and they were ready to give up. 
So how do we keep on going? Hebrews 12 gives us a plan for overcoming the obstacles and going the distance in the Christian life. Now, I've broken it down into four points today. We're going to, as I said, we're going to look at the, the first two, the propulsion for endurance and the purpose for endurance. And then next week, we'll look at the picture of endurance and the promise of endurance. Four Ps, the four Ps of endurance. Well, today, let us begin by looking at the first thing, and I think the primary thing, the propulsion for endurance. What, do we, what must we have to endure? Well, we've got to have some propulsion, some energy, something to motivate us, to move us forward, to keep putting one foot in front of the other in the Christian life. What motivates the Christian to keep on running the race that is set before us? As I said, when I go out for a run, I need something to keep me going when it gets difficult. And that, that difficulty usually comes about 50 yards into the run. And I need something to keep me going. And sometimes I have to look and say, okay, I'm doing this to get in shape. I'm doing this to lose weight. And those are some motivators we use. To, why, would we out, why would we go out and sweat and hurt and, and, and run out of breath? If we need motivation just to exercise, how much more do we need the proper motivation to keep us going through the difficulties of the Christian life? Now, often we use some very poor motivators in our Christian lives. And there are several that I've listed there for you. We often use guilt or fear, shame or pride to motivate ourselves but these motivators will only get us so far. Of course, guilt, uh, that works by making you feel bad about the sin. We should feel, we should feel bad about our sin. That's, it's right to do so. We should feel guilt if we're guilty. But it's not a motivator to do the right because it really is self-centered. We're looking at ourselves but in your heart, you really don't want to change because you enjoy your sins, else you wouldn't do them. And just by feeling guilty, it lasts for a little while, but, but it, it, it doesn't last all that long. Fear says, you must stop doing this or you'll get caught, and then everyone will see you. But there are times when you won't get caught. Our friend Drew... You know, he was a CB here for a while, and, and he went to Azerbaijan, which is a, a resort area in the Arab world. And he was amazed, as he related to me, uh, that people would get on the plane, Muslims would get on the plane to go from the mainland to Azerbaijan, and, and the women would start taking off their burqas, and they were wearing fancy dresses and makeup and they were drinking alcohol and doing all the things that Muslims wouldn't do because they believed that whatever uh, that, that Allah could not see what went on in Azerbaijan in this resort area. And we kind of laugh at that, but is it any different than the statement, "What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas"? Do we not think that God doesn't see what happens in Vegas? Yes, He does. He knows exactly what, what happens. In Vegas, Azerbaijan, he knows what happens in the privacy of your own house. He knows what's going on on your computer. He 
He sees everything. So fear says, I'm going to get caught doing this, but there are some things you can get away with and no one will ever see. So fear is not a great motivator. Shame and pride both feed the ego. They say, well, you're better than this. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. You're better than this. Or, you know, I am... I am an upstanding person and I want to be viewed. And See, what you're doing is saying, I'm, I'm a good person, I'm better than this, when actually you're not better than this because you've just done the sin, so you're not better than that. So it's just feeding your pride and your ego. Some only live with a Christian ethic because of living in the Bible Belt. A lot of us grew up living in a culture that's largely influenced by Christianity. But what happens when that culture erodes as it is doing and the motivation to live the godly life disappears? Why do we go to church? Everybody, when we were growing up, went to church. You all had a church home. What about today when the majority of people don't go to church? As we lived in England... Only a very small percentage of the population went to church. And there were people whom we knew who'd never been in a church uh, unless it was a baptism or a funeral or a wedding. When they're hatched, matched, and dispatched, that was a saying. That's the saying. That's the three times when the many British people went to church. And see, the people who came to church weren't going because it was, there was some cultural reward to it. It actually made everybody look at them a little, like they were a little crazy. What happens when that happens here? Will we continue to go? What about when they take our tax break away, when, when it no longer uh, is beneficial to us to tithe? Will we continue to tithe? Will we continue to be faithful to what the Lord has commanded us to do? See, we have to ask ourselves, what's motivating us? Is it just because... I was raised this way and everybody else is doing it in the culture? Well, none of these motivators will keep you going through the long haul of the Christian life. When it does get very difficult, when the culture is going against you, how do you keep going? Well, the writer of Hebrews says this to motivate his readers and us as well. Verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us lay aside every weight and sin which, so clings so, which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. The greatest motivator for the Christian life is Jesus. The writer here exhorts us to look at Jesus, to fix our eyes on Jesus. If you're reading the New American Standard or the NIV, which I think is a very good translation of it, turn our eyes away from other things and fix them squarely on Jesus. And then in verse 3, he tells us to consider Jesus, to ponder Jesus, to reflect deeply upon Jesus. He's telling this to these people who are ready to give up. He's telling them to just look at Jesus. The gospel, the good news about Jesus 
is the fuel to propel us in the Christian life. Fix your eyes on what he did for you at the cross. That's what he's telling you. He joyfully endured the cross. He thought the shame of it was far outweighed by your salvation. He felt your soul was worth enduring such hostility against himself. And as you think about that, think about now, how can I just go and sin against him? And how can I uh, treat the grace of God with such contempt? And that will motivate you. Preach that gospel to yourself every day and you will find the sins not clinging so tightly to you. Dwell on the fact that he is the one who granted you faith, as it says here. He's the author of it and he is the one who will bring your faith to completion, to perfection, to the finish line. So look to him. Fix your eyes on Jesus and don't look away. Stop sinning, not for your own sake, but for Jesus' sake. That's the motivator. Now he also mentions the great cloud of witnesses here. The people that he mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. People like Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, and the rest. Now it's interesting, interesting that he calls these faithful men and women as a cloud of witnesses who surround us. Now you might get the impression that these saints are up in heaven cheering for you as you uh, run the race of the Christian life. It's a nice thought, but I, I don't believe that is the meaning. I think they probably have something better to do up in heaven than just stare down at us and say, yeah, go. They're witnesses, but they are not witnesses of us. They are witnesses to us. That's what Hebrews 11 is all about. They're not idly sitting by watching us run the race. No, they are witnessing, testifying to us by their lives. They themselves are pointing us to Jesus. They looked to Jesus. And see, that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He says, all these men and women, they looked to Jesus and they surrounded you. Look at them looking at Jesus and you look to Jesus. You fix your eyes on Jesus. Abraham and Moses and all the rest are saying with their lives, look at Jesus, consider Jesus, fix your eyes on him. And that's what they were doing. See, they did not have as much revealed as we have. They saw it from a, a greater distance. But they were looking forward to Christ just the same. Abraham, for example, Jesus says, rejoice to see Christ's day. And he's going to rejoice even more when Christ returns. And Moses took on the reproach of Christ even though he didn't know Christ. He didn't know Jesus. He didn't know who that would be. But we do. And like them, like those witnesses, let us follow that example of looking to Jesus. That's what they're witnessing to us about. So the motivator for the Christian life, the great motivator is to fix your eyes on Jesus. To continue to look to him, to continue to, to rest upon him, his finished work, to continue to rely upon him and to be motivated by what he's done for us. He's done everything for us. What can I do for him? What can you do for him? Live for him. Now secondly, not only does the writer give us the 
propulsion for enduring in the Christian life, but he also give us, gives us, in verses 5 through 11, the purpose for this endurance. We pick up the reading in verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So first of all, you need to keep looking to Jesus to be motivated in the Christian life. But also, as we seek to endure and keep going and living the Christian life, how do we do it when it gets difficult? We need to remember something. We need to remember that everything that ha happens to us, that God is sovereign over that, and he uses that for our good. See, only when you have that perspective on things can you avoid getting lost in the moment. See, when the Christian life gets difficult, it's easy to get lost in the moment. All we can think about is this difficulty that we're having. And, and we can think of little else. And we wonder, why is God doing this? And, and why did, what did I do to deserve this? And, and the original audience to whom the writer was writing was lost in their moment. You know, in chapter 10, uh, they had worked through past difficulties. They had been faithful in the midst of even uh, suffering and persecution. But now it had gotten too much. And they were just ready to quit and go back to their old lives. And the writer is saying to them and to us Christians, do not forget that God is your loving Heavenly Father. And the difficulties that you endure are, are all for His purposes in you. Now we may not understand exactly what He is doing but we can be assured that he is treating us like those he loves, his children. You know, a good father disciplines his children. I don't discipline, uh, I try to discipline my children. I'm not very good at it. But I don't discipline other people's kids because I don't care about them. <laughs> that sounds harsh. But you know what I'm saying. That's exactly what the passages say. You know, we don't have an investment, we don't have a love for people we don't know, but the ones who are ours, that we care about, we, we, we discipline, we want to point them in the right direction. And God is a greater than any human father. He's the perfect, great, heavenly father who is sovereign over everything and he's using all the circumstances of our lives for our benefit to make us what he would have us to be and when we forget that it's easy to get lost in the moment of our trial so God is great at discipline but 
Don't think discipline. We're tempted to think of discipline as only punishment. It's not. Discipline includes a lot of things. The word discipline, it's a broad term. It denotes the upbringing and handling of, of a child which is growing up to maturity and thus needs direction, teaching, instruction, and a certain measure of compulsion in the form of discipline or even chastisement. You think about God, what he does for us. You know, what, uh, he disciplines us just as we would discipline. We, we, we teach a child what's right and what's wrong. And then when they continue to do the wrong thing, they get punished. Well, God does the same thing for us. He teaches. He instructs. He directs us. And then sometimes, like it says in verse 5, he has to reprove us. And that word reprove means to show someone his sin and to summon him to repentance. See, God wants to change us. He wants us to not go in the wrong direction. He's trying to help us out in all these difficulties that we face. God uses all these various ways to guide us into the right, to show us our sin and to lead us to repentance. He's showing us the way to run the race and finish it. That even in the midst of, of running the race and overcoming the obstacles, he's training us to finish the race. It's like training as we run the marathon. And why does he do this? Because he loves us, as verse 10 says. He disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. He's training us as we run. And that's why Romans 8.28 is such a favorite verse for mature Christians to remember that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. So when the Christian life gets tough, ask yourself, what is the Heavenly Father doing? What could he be doing? What's he showing me? How is he training me? How is he telling me I need to repent? Repentance is always a good idea because we are sinners. He loves me. So this trial will eventually fruit, uh, yield, as it says, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It may take some time. It may be at mile 24 or mile 25 on the journey. But we will yield that fruit if we will be trained by it. Keeping that perspective in life helps us to not get lost in these moments. We're taking the long view with the promise that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, as it says in Philippians 1.6. So verse 7 says, very plainly, it is for discipline that you have to endure. The reason you have to endure, the purpose behind it is so that you will be disciplined, so that you will be shaped and molded into what God would have you be. So as we endure, we learn and we grow so that God makes us into the people he means for us to be. And you don't get that way by quitting the race. I grew up playing sports. And, and you know, when you first went out for football in August, as usually happens when you're in high school. You know, you have to run and you sweat and it's hot and it's not fun at all. And you have to learn the plays and learn how to do your position well, though I didn't learn it very, our team never learned it because we always lost. 
When I was in high school, we were terrible. We weren't as disciplined as we needed to be. But we could have quit. And you don't win the race by quitting. You don't, you don't learn and grow and become stronger and you don't develop if you quit. Because God uses the trials to shape and mold us. So keep that perspective on the purpose, the ultimate purpose that God has for his people. Now many of you will have seen the movie Chariots of Fire, which featured one part of it was about Eric Little. Uh, Eric Little was a strong Christian. And he had, he had been raised by missionary parents in China and then came back to uh, the United Kingdom for his education. He was also, by the time he was in college, the fastest man in Great Britain. And at the 1924 Summer Olympics in Paris, Eric Little famously refused to run the heats of the 100 meters, which was his, his best event, because those heats took place on a Sunday. He, wanted to, he was wanting to honor the Sabbath and not compete on Sunday. And so he competed in the 400 meters, which he won. He wrote, It has been a wonderful experience to compete in the Olympic Games and to bring home a gold medal. But since I have been a young lad, I have had my eyes on a different prize. You see, each one of us is in a greater race than any I have run in Paris, and this race ends when God gives out the medals. So instead of continuing to train after he won the gold medal in the 24 Olympics, he returned to China in 1925 to serve as a missionary. And he came back twice to the UK until he died in China in a Japanese internment camp in 1945. He fixed his eyes on the prize. He fixed his eyes on Christ. And that was what was important to him. And interestingly enough, he wrote one book called The Disciplines of the Christian Life. He was a disciplined athlete and he was a disciplined Christian. And he understood what God was doing in the world and in his life. And he famously said, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. And when we run with endurance the race that is set before us, we are sure to feel his pleasure as well. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we pray that you would help us to be able to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus as we go through our lives living for you. And Lord, help us to always see you as our loving Heavenly Father who is, who is working in us to, to make us holy, to free us from the guilt, the bondage, and even the presence of sin. Lord, thank you for these things and help, help us to carry these things with us out into our lives, into the world, so that we may run with endurance the race that is set before us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.